service, and and then we'll have a reception following that during the afternoon. And then the next morning on April 1st, we'll lay hands on Pastor Rob to become the lead pastor here at Big Bear Christian Center. And I was asked this morning, once again, uh, it happens regularly, what will you do with all your free time, Pastor Jeff? And I, I, I always have to try and explain that I'm not retiring. You know, people, it's, it's out there, I'm retiring. Uh, you know, I'm still on staff, I'm still in your budget. I'm going to uh, harass Pastor Rob through the rest of the year, at least. Actually, I'm going to get behind him and serve him, and, and we're going to work together. And just we're just trading places. He's going to be the lead guy, and, and so what, what he says goes. So pray for him. Amen? <laughs> and pray for me. <laughs> uh, we work together well. And uh, he is definitely a, one of those sons in the faith, but like Paul said about Timothy, uh, it's been a good journey together with he and his family. And, and uh, I love Pastor Rob. I love him. Uh, he's working on loving me probably, but I love him. Hey, do we still, well, we probably don't have a lot of mechanics available this morning in the snow, and we're going to have to get rid of that little high-pitched ring there. So we'll blow somebody out of their living room chair. Or me, thank you. Last week we put up the slide for the cell definition or the life group definition, which kind of works around the room here on these banners. I'll just read it for you, since how we may not have it on an overhead for you today. It says, at the core of Big Bear Christian Center are life groups of 3 to 15 people that meet weekly throughout Big Bear Valley. Empowered by the Holy Spirit through prayer, their purpose is to make disciples through spiritual growth, community, and evangelism, resulting in group multiplication. We want you to become very familiar with this definition because that is not just what we're working through. It's not a new program. If you were here last week, we talked an awful lot about uh, relationships and being in relationships. And the questions we've asked have stirred uh, a lot of conversation during this week, I understand, and trying to answer the question of who are the three people in your inner circle like Jesus had uh, his Peter, James, and John. Who are yours? And who are you very close to? And are you developing intimate relationships with others that not only sustain you, but train you and equip you and uh, give you that moment of receiving life from Christ and giving life to others, which is necessary for us in our spiritual maturity. And so the life groups are so important for fulfilling this. It's just what we call them. You know, the early church, they just met from house to house, the Bible says. They shared their meals with joy and singleness of heart. They participated in the apostles' doctrine and worship and prayer and evangelism together. And they were constantly in the temple. It says daily in the temple and from house to house. And they were living out their Christian experience. So it's more than a program. It's more than just small groups. It's a place where life can happen and where life is exchanged to be in, uh, you know, to pound the word, you know, to be in a life group. And we're hearing testimonies of life change that happens in these groups, and so we encourage everybody to be in one. I've written here this morning, meaningful relationships with others in the family of God help us discover the same connection, the same deep connection with God the Father, His Son Jesus, and by the power, empowerment of God the Holy Spirit. Meaningful relationships with others. When I can build and develop a sincere and I say meaningful, it could be, you could take that word and expand it in a lot of directions, but it's a life-giving 
connected relationship with a person where you share deeply about your life, your struggles, your successes, your victories, your losses, your your loves, your emotions, your deep-seated heart-based feelings in life. When you can get to the point where you have somebody like that in your life, you begin to connect. Then it's always that same possibility with God as well. Now, some would take it the other way around and say, if I can develop a deep relationship with God and spend time with Him and intimacy and, and transparency and vulnerability with Him, then I'll be able to turn and do it with people. Okay, let's not, let's not die on every cross here this morning. Let's just say, get it done. <laughs> Whichever way you want to go at it. But what often people do is they say, I have this great relationship with God. But you never see it manifest in a relationship on the earth. And I think, I'm going to accuse us, I think they're hiding. I think they've taken the easy way out to say that I'm dealing with an invisible entity. I'm, de- I'm dealing with someone you can't see, but I don't do well with people I do see. Are you going where I'm going in the scriptures? First John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, and I'm going to read a number of verses, and I'll, I'll, I'll announce them so we can keep up together as I go. First John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 18, My little children... Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave commandment. Chapter chapter 4. Verse 7. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Skip over to verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. Did you find that to be true? You love God because He loved you first? If someone says in verse 20, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Verse 20 is the hinge on which I'm hanging my door today. Okay, It's where everything swings from. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I'm trying to keep this simple. I felt like I wandered around a bit last week with this message. I even went back and listened to myself online to to see what I did. Because sometimes when you're preaching, you don't really catch on. And so I went back and listened. And, you know, I I came to this conclusion. I didn't do that bad. (laughs) It was pretty good. I I could have even taken notes. I took notes on myself. And I followed right along. But I, I, I had my notes from last week with me as I was listening online. I realized I preached it totally out of order. I was like number one. Then I went to 10 and back to three. And I was all over the map. That's what I was feeling as I was presenting. So I'm trying to, some Pastor Rob says, see if you can't land the plane this week, okay? <laughs> see if you can't get this thing understandable for us. And then, man, I got all these years' experience and I'm nervous about preaching, and gee whiz, here we are. But maybe just now, let me try and form a quick summary. What I'm trying to say is this you need some people in your life that you're very close to, whom you love, and they love you. You, can't, you won't have a lot of them. Probably going to count them on one hand at any time in your life, less than five. I see the demonstration in Jesus with Peter, James, and John having three in his what we call his inner circle. This has been a kind of a church phrase for years, the inner circle of Jesus. But it wasn't that he had a tight circle and excluded people. Jesus is totally inclusive, right? He loves you and me as much as he loves Peter, James, and John. But when the Bible says he went up the mountain to pray, in the Mount of Transfiguration, we call it, when he went up the mountain to pray, he turned and he said to these three guys, you guys come with me. Why? Because they were going to pray. And so all of us need this same model, this same illustration. We need people in our lives who are close to us, where we share things intimately and deeply. Um, I've brought these notes along. Let Let me just share them quickly with you. Five levels of communication. This is just support information. You may know it. And if so, hang on with me. But in every relationship is kind of a journey, and there are five levels of communication that we go through with people in developing intimacy. Okay? The first one is cliches. You get this when you're standing in the line at the grocery store. How are you? Fine. Nice day. How's the weather? It's just you can talk in this level with anybody. There's no real connection happening, but it is the first level of building relationship, which is acquaintance. So the cliche conversation, hey, fine, yeah, good, nice, see you later, okay. And that's as deep as it goes. The second level, though, and if you can see this in the, in the shape of a triangle with five levels in the triangle with the widest level at the bottom reaching to the pinnacle at the top, and imagine that the space available inside the triangle at the bottom is much larger than the space in the pinnacle, right? And so you could have a lot more people at this level of conversation. You can fill that with everybody. Anybody can fit in here. But then you move it, as you move up this triangle, the, the size and shape gets smaller. Fewer people can exist in each one as we move upward. The second one is, we call it the facts. Level four. If you're writing it upside down, it could be one and two. I don't really care how you write it. I just go from five up to one, okay? Some people like to do it one to five. Okay, fine. Still comes to the top. Sharing the facts, information, statistics, um, what's happening at the office, 
friends, news, personal activities. It requires no depth of feeling or thinking to, to talk in this level four. Just sharing the facts. In fact, at level four, sharing the facts is like watching news on television or listening to it on the radio or whatever. It's that they talk to you and give you the facts, but you don't get to talk back. There's no interchange happening. You're getting information, or if you're the one talking, you're giving information, and it doesn't require any relationship at all. But there are fewer people that you will share the facts with in your life. When we move up to the next levels, level three, it's that level of opinions. You've heard the phrase, when you go to, uh, with, in, in large groups, never talk about two things. What are they? Politics and religion. Why is that? Because both of those topics require you to give your opinion. And once you give your opinion, what happens is you've gone over a line and now you're vulnerable. Because the person on the other side can disagree with you. And so you're at risk. Level three, it's a smaller size. Less people are in that area that you're going to do this with. You know, some people are just bold. They'll get in any group and talk about politics or religion. And uh, if you walk into a room and you decide to announce your candidate to 50 people in a room, the room will divide and split, right? Oh, this we're over here with you and we're over here with we're not we're against you and because you have an opinion. And once you share your opinion or your concerns or your expectations, your personal goals, your dreams, your hopes, and you hand that off to somebody else and they disagree with you, they have the possibility of hurting your feelings. Now, check this out. That's just level three. We have two to go. But probably 80 to 90% of all marriages live at level four. They just share the facts. What's for dinner, honey? Uh, you know, beans and rice. Well, what time's the kid's soccer practice? Okay, are you going to take a mic and They're just sharing facts. All the, what time do you have to be to work? Am I dropping or are you dropping? Are we going or in this level? What happened? They, they took a chance one day, and she said to him in level three communication, Honey, I, I feel this way about these things. And he disagreed. He went, What? I can't believe you feel that way. And, and that flower was opening, and he went with his words, and she just closed down and said, You know what? Level three is kind of dangerous. I don't think I'll ever do that again. And 80 to 90% of marriages live in level four because they got up in level three and got spanked by the other person and they decided I'm never going there again and it's sad because level three is where the real exchanges start taking place they start taking place I love this I feel deeply about these things I hope for this these are my expectations and I'm willing to you know, reach in here and pull out my heart and hand it to you a little bit and see what you do with it will you hurt it or will you hold it will you drop it will you massage it will you encourage it what will you do with my heart when I hand it to you in communication? Level four. The triangle shrinks again. Fewer people. I mean, level two. Excuse me. I'm reading it backwards myself, aren't I? Level two. It's unfortunate because my list goes the wrong way. At level four, we share our deepest feelings. We literally reach inside of our, our chest and grab our heart and willingly hand it to the other person and let go. And we say in that moment, I trust you implicitly 
to take care of that. I have no way of stopping you with what you do with my heart now. I've given it to you. And I believe about you. And I trust you to the point that I, I believe you will not hurt me. This is supposed to happen in marriage. See, we're living way up there, not down there in level four. We take risk when we develop relationships. And I believe, quickly go back to Jesus and Peter, James, and John. I believe Jesus was opening up to that point with these guys saying, here's my heart. I will pray openly and talk to my Father in heaven about my struggles, about my, my concerns. I will listen for his voice with you present. Prayer is something that develops intimacy. I've said this before. I stole this from Ed Cole, a man who had a men's ministry called Maximize Manhood. He used to say this, that prayer produces intimacy. Pornography produces distance. And then he would tie it together saying this, and that's really strong for men to hear. We think that pornography is going to bring intimacy, and it doesn't. It produces distance. We, we, it, it drives us away from a relationship rather than drawing us in. But the first point is the most important for him. Prayer produces intimacy. And he would say, it produces an intimacy that is deeper than even the sexual relationship between a man and a wife. If you pray together with people, you pray together with your spouse, pray together with your friends, pray together with your Peter, James, and John, you will know such intimacy with them and with God that it will surprise you. But you have to feel safe to get that far. I mean, think of it in those terms and it will help you. You're going to open your chest. You're going to take out your deepest emotions, your most vulnerable feelings, your most transparent discussions. And you're going to hand your heart to another person and they're going to take it. How many people are you going to do this with? I'm thinking less than five at any point in my life bears out true. And the model is still found in Christ. The topest, the top, topest level, the highest level. Go ahead, laugh at home. I know you're laughing at home too. The highest level in this triangle is that little tiny top. How many people can we get in? How many people will we allow into that highest level and we're just talking about communication here. But you know, when you communicate, your, your life comes along with it. So it really is all about you and your life. Is, we, is where we are willing to share our needs. I feel completely safe in the conversation. I will share my unique needs with this person. I will entirely trust them with my heart. I'll take every risk and chance I must in order to maintain the relationship. In fact, this is how I draw the conclusion on this part. And nobody, nobody gave me this. I developed this myself, okay? The triangle's not mine. When I got to the top, I reached. I said, what, what does this mean up here at the top? Uh, my, my most deep me, the me of my life. Uh, how many people am I going to let into that triangle? Um, and I saw Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the Bible says about them, there they were, man and woman, and they were naked and unashamed. Right? Is that what the Bible tells us? And I, and I, I say it, they were naked and they were unashamed. 
Now, let's get our minds up a level. Let's get away from the flesh thinking right now and focusing on the fact that they had no clothes on. It goes way beyond that. They were naked, meaning there was nothing separating them at all. Mentally, socially, if you will, husband and wife, uh, spiritually, mentally, they, they were able to connect freely at every level, totally open, totally naked, and totally unashamed. When did the shame come? When the sin came. And shame is a killer. Oh, shame is a killer. For us individuals and as as relationships, it's a real killer when we live in shame. And God came to to heal us and redeem us from shame. So I see Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. And and I think about the people in this top triangle of of relationship building. How many people am I going to be naked and unashamed with? For me, it's come down to this two. One is God and the other one is my spouse. It's probably as far as I could go in being fully naked and unashamed in every way. In the fallen state of man and in the fallen nature, that's about as far as you should take it right there. And, and you can see, when you open your eyes and look across the world horizon, you think, how distorted has this become? People are naked and ashamed with everybody else in their neighborhood, you know, hooking up here and doing that, and, and there's no boundaries anymore, and don't have to be married, and you can do anything you want with anybody, go to a party, go home with anybody, not even know their name, who cares, doesn't matter. And, and the whole world has, has misunderstood the plan of God and the good news of being in relationship. I know that took a little time to get through those, and it's just sort of a cursory uh, passing of the information, but I'm, I'm wanting us to understand that if we will build deep and meaningful relationships with a few people in our lives, we will also be able to sit with God and be naked and unashamed with Him. And that if we say we love God and we're willing to be transparent and vulnerable with Him, but we don't become vulnerable and transparent with people and love people, the Bible says we're a liar. That's strong. That's strong. That's, that's John, the Apostle John talking. That's the, the Apostle of love as he's writing here. It's all about loving one another. And, and they say about the Apostle John and his elderly, uh, as he was grown old, they couldn't walk. And so they would pick him up and carry him from place to place and from meeting to meeting. And, they would, and he would attend these gatherings of believers. And, they would, and so as they were carrying him about, they would ask him questions. Well, what do we need to do about this? And what do we need? You know, there's a conflict here. And there's a marriage problem there. There's a family issue there. There's a work deal here. And Apostle John, what should we do about these things? And in his, in his last stages, he would simply just say, oh, love one another. That'll do it. Just well, no, no, no. What about what about this husband and wife thing? It's just fall apart. Just love one another. He was always pointing at this. I think he had grasped the truth. And this is the reason Jesus gave the commandment. Love one another. Love one another as God has loved you. Because if you can learn to do that, then you'll know true relationship with the Father. And you can take it in there. My example this morning, and I used to began to use last week, is David, the psalmist. Um, 
Oh, and my apologies for last week. I was talking about practicing the presence of God and the brother that wrote the letters. And I said his name was Brother Andrew. I, li- I heard myself when I listened to the message. I went, oh, he's wrong. It's not Brother Andrew. It's Brother Lawrence. So my apologies. Brother Lawrence is the one who wrote Practicing the Presence of God in the letters. And he was the one who worked in the monastery who said that the hardest part of his life at the monastery is when they'd stop everything during the day and say, okay, it's time to go to your rooms for the hour of prayer. Because his life was a life of prayer. He breathed prayer. He was one of those pray without ceasing guys. He said it was such an interruption to his prayer life to have to stop what he was doing to go sit in his room. Because he had a constant dialogue going with God. And I want to say to us that our prayer life, as as has often been phrased in those words, how is your prayer life? There's an indication subtly there for me that says that my prayer life is separate from my other life. It's almost like we say, well, I'm a Christian, but I live in a secular world. So I go to church and I do my Christian life. I go to my cell, I go to my life group, I have my Christian life, but I also have my work life. And we separate them. This is wrong. My life is my life. Everything's co-joined. And when the Bible says pray without ceasing, how do I do that? I don't just stop and have an hour of devotions and I never talk to God outside the other 23 hours in a day. No. My relationship should be flowing and going in and out of you know, it can be level five and four and three and two and one with God. And, and it can be happening all the time. He's never distant. I'm always with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you constantly. So the dialogue can continue all the time. And this was Brother Lawrence's practice. And we get to my friend this morning, your friend, King David. And the reason I want to use him is, number one, there are three passages, 1 Samuel 13, 14. I believe it is. Let me make sure I know. Let's see if I wrote this. Yeah. Where um, the prophet is talking, Samuel is talking with Saul, who's been rejected as king of Israel. And he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul is being rejected as king. The announcement from the prophet is God already has chosen for himself a man who is after his own heart. In chapter 16 and verse 7, now Samuel is over at Jesse's house looking to anoint the next king of Israel out of all of his sons. God has sent him to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. And as they're passing, no, not that, not that one, not that one. Uh, Verse 6, it says, So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, and and the prophet said, Surely the Lord's anointing is before him. This has got to be the guy. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature. I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then later on in this chapter, this 15-year-old comes in from the field, this little shepherd boy. And God says, there's my man. There's the one, anoint him. That's the one who is after my own heart. That's the next king. 15 years old. 1 Kings 
However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. I wanted to read to you this definition that's in my Bible of the word chose because it says God chose David. That's my, old, my, my point here. To choose, to select, or elect. To determine, to have one in particular. This word describes the kind of choosing that is made when more than one item is examined with only one or a few being selected. It's primarily used with the idea of God's making significant choices. In this reference, God chose David to be ruler over Israel. The right of God to choose whomever he wishes is well established in scripture. Ladies, it's kind of like when you go to the produce section, right? And you're decided you're going to get avocados or tomatoes. Or, and you, or watermelons in season. And you take your time there, don't you? You, know, you just grab a basket and throw a few things. You, know, you select. There's a lot laying there. But you always believe you got the right ones, don't you? And you squeeze a few and you move them around. You go, oh, no. Yeah. You know, and the next person that comes in behind you squeezes the one you squeeze and takes it. That's amazing to me that they thought the one you rejected was the right one. Well, you may have a reason for selecting one that's not quite ripe and you're going to let it ripen at home in time for making your guacamole or something. But the point here is there was a lot to choose from, but God chose David. Selected him out of everything available and said, I want this one. Why? Because I've seen him out with the sheep. I've seen him in the field. I've seen him with his little dulcimer out under the tree, singing and worshiping me. He is a man after my own heart. And I choose him. In First Chronicles 15... David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. Now the ark is the very presence of God for the Old Testament. For God said, I will dwell above the ark. I will be at the ark. I will be between the wings of the cherubim. There's where you will meet with me at the mercy seat, the top of the ark, the, the lid. I'll meet with you there. And he would meet the high priest there once a year and blood was put on me the mercy seat, and sins were forgiven and set aside. And anyway, this was the, the piece of furniture in the old covenant that represented the very presence of God. And it had been lost and then restored and then improperly brought toward Jerusalem and stopped short at the house of Obed-Edom, where it stayed for three months. And I like the, 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 the verse that says in Everything that happened at Obed-Edom's house was blessed entirely for three months. Because, man, can you imagine running into your house saying, Kids, move the furniture. The ark's coming. <laughs> We're going to put it right here. Get rid of that television, man. <laughs> Rake that out of the way. Clear that off. Let's rearrange the furniture because the ark's going to be in our living room for three months. They didn't know how long it would stay, but <gasps> the presence of God in my living room. And everything about Obed-Edom's house was blessed. And David was a little jealous because he wanted the ark back in Jerusalem. So he sought the Lord. How do we do it? What did we do wrong? And in chapter 15, he gets everything in right order. And they bring the ark of the covenant back in to Jerusalem. And uh, I suppose I should remember this too. In 2 Samuel 
these are parallel passages on the same event. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, when they're bringing it in, uh, it says David in verse 13 or 12. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom in the city of David with, to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which was a garment of the priesthood. And he's dancing, and he's joyous, and he's bringing the ark back. And his wife despises him in his heart, and in her heart, and says, "You know, you're a vile man dancing out there in front of all the people like that. You're an idiot. You know, what's the matter with you?" And and David says, "Man, if this is being vile, then I'm going to be even yet more vile for the Lord because I just want to please Him. This is the man after God's own heart." That same reference is given to us in the book of Acts when. When Paul stands up and begins to defend the gospel, and I believe he's in Antioch, and he's recounting the history of Israel, because that's how they did it when they began to say, Brothers, do you have anything to exhort here in the synagogue today? Share, share with us something. And the Jewish uh, response, or the, the sharer's response in the temple, was generally followed a pattern. This is how it went. They would stand up and they would begin to rehearse. And you'll see this when you read the book of Acts numerous times. Stephen did it right before he was stoned. They would stand up and they would start this this history lesson over. They say, well, we all know that God chose our father Abraham and brought him, did this, and then there was that and this, and it would go right through all the history of Israel. And then the people in the synagogue would know they were listening to somebody that knew what they were talking about. So they would lay the foundation of the history of Israel. And as Paul's laying the foundation of the history, he says, and then God chose David, about whom he testified and said, this is a man after mine own heart who will do all my will. David gets the ark under a tent. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. All the other stuff of the tabernacle is over on Mount Shiloh. But here's God's, David says, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing the ark home to Jerusalem. And I'll put up a tent. It's a, just an open space and protected. And, I'm gonna, and he organizes worship to happen 24 hours a day in shifts with the priesthood. And they would take shifts and come in for like eight-hour shifts and dance and sing and blow horns and and worship and carry on in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And then their shift would be over and the next crew would come in and they'd do the same thing. And they do this at IHOP, in the International House of Prayer in, uh, in Kansas City. And you can actually watch it online. You can go to IHOP.org, I think it is, and, and get a pancake. Just kidding. <laughs> There's been problems with that, actually. And, uh, but you can go to, and, and it doesn't matter, 24-7, they'll be broadcasting a worship team and prayer people praying all night and all day. It's kind of a cool thing. This is what David put in place. He got it all set, and then the ark settled, and he sends everybody home. In chapter 17, it says, It came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent curtain. Nathan said to David, Do all that's in your heart. God's with you. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell David, go tell my servant David, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought up Israel, even to this day. I've gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? 
Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be the ruler of my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off your, all of your enemies from in front of you. I've made your name like the name of a great man on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them, and they'll dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. And he goes on. And, he, and he, he talks about this covenant that he's making with David. It shall be, in verse 11, when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I'll be his father, he'll be my son. I won't take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. That's Saul. And I will establish him in my house and my kingdom forever. And his throne will be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now if you got lost in the reading, I apologize. God's simply saying this. I'm making a covenant relationship with you, David. You're a man after my own heart. You love me, I love you. We live in level one. Okay? Our, Our relationship's way beyond sharing the facts. It's a lot more than cliche. We're beyond just sharing our opinions or our emotions. We're heart to heart. You're a man after my own heart. And David, here's the deal. You're not going to do anything more for me. I'm going to do everything for you. And so much so that as a king, I'm guaranteeing you that of your seed, there will never fail to be a king on the throne of Israel. I don't know if you study much about kings and all that kind of stuff. It's different than our democratic political system. But I mean, kings would kill to be king. And kings would kill family members to make sure another family member followed them on the throne. I mean, it was a kind of deadly business. And if you got to be king, you would go out and kill the last king's whole family so that none of them could inherit the throne. You maybe have seen this depicted in some films or in some stories you've read. But it's true. You would eliminate the competition mercilessly. And so David is hearing from God. You don't have to fight for the throne ever. I'm establishing your seed from now to every generation in the future. Forever? Now you and I know that that was fulfilled in Christ because Jesus is the seed of David. Follow the lineage. It comes right there. God fulfilled his word and kept his promise and took care of the covenant. And it still exists today. But David demonstrates for us, in verse 16, what I would like for each of us. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord? God. And what is my house that you've brought me this far? And and you can read the rest. Verse 25, I'll skip to it, says, You, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. Can you, can you see the picture with me? you got a fly tent, the Ark of the Covenant's there all around, or priests singing and worshiping and blowing trumpets, horn, ram's horns and, and in front of the Ark. And worship is happening. David's instituted it. And he gets this word about being in covenant relationship. See, covenant relationship is different than a contract. 
This is why marriage in, in our nation struggles so we don't understand this. We've, we have portrayed marriage to be a contract relationship. You do your part, I do my part, everything works. You don't do your part, I'm out. We think it's like buying a car. You know, the car dealer says, as long as you make the payments, you get to keep the car. You quit making the payments, we come take it away. Or your house or something. It's a contract. Covenant is not like that. Covenant is when one person says to another, I am giving my entire self to you, even if you don't love me back. And from now on, everything I have is yours. Period. You can hate me, and you still get it. And that's what God does in covenant with us. He sent Jesus to the cross and said, this is my covenant for you. It's a covenant of blood. I give you my son. I give you redemption. I provide for you everything you need for the forgiveness of your sin and the establishment of your relationship back in, in oneness with me. But you can still hate God. You can still refuse it. You can say no to it. But all of it still exists for your benefit. At any moment, you can take up on it, and God will be good on his covenant. That's for us. So what I'm saying here, let me parallel this if I can. I feel like I'm almost doing as poorly as I did last week. David, when he realized that God had just made covenant with him, and he didn't deserve it, his response was to stop. You know there are more than a dozen positions for worship and prayer in the Bible? Can you think of one that the Bible talks about? Postures for worship and prayer. On your face. On your knees. Standing. Lifting hands. Bowing. Dancing. Clapping. We can go through. There's more than a dozen easily. But what David does, and he was a dancer. We saw that he danced with all his might before the ark. So he knew what it was to get rowdy and dance and act out. You know, it meant, it meant to whirl in jubilation is the word of dancing in the, in the scriptures there. He put all those aside and he went in in front of God at the ark. And he sat down. Now, I see that as being very comfortable with someone. To just go in and sit down with them, right? You meet somebody for lunch, you go and you sit down. You go to their house, you, you sit down. You are comfortable in their presence. You're not nervous. You're in relationship. Uh, I think in the, in the tabernacle of David, this fly tent with the ark, there weren't any chairs. There weren't any chairs in the furniture of the temple or the tabernacle. There's no place to sit. But in that Middle Eastern style, I think he just pulled up a spot on the floor next to the ark. And then he, and he just began to talk with the Father. Why me? Why did you choose? What is my family that you would bestow such grace on me? By the way, grace is happening in this picture because nobody got to sit in front of the ark except for the high priest. Nobody got to see God and live in these days. But David understood grace before grace existed in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, you know, the law came through Moses, but grace had... Mercy and truth came through Jesus Christ. And David is walking in grace right here. He's standing right in front of God, sitting right in front of God. He's talking with him intimately. He's going level one right now with God. Do you want that? Do I want that? I've actually wrote in my planner, if you will, whatever device you might have, where I keep my notes. I plan time every day to sit with the Father. And I'm thinking I have to discipline myself to 
if I was going to use this room to just come in here and put it, one chair just in the middle of the room. Why would I do that? Well, maybe you're like me. You've got a lot of electronic connections and computers and cell phones and people and stuff going all the time, don't we? I almost need some place to be in the middle where nothing can touch me and put everything else outside where I can't reach it and be distracted and pull up a chair and sit with God. You know, I see Pastor Floyd here this morning, and, and I don't think he'd care if I ratted him off, but he and I meet as regular as we can for maybe going on six years now, seven years or something, every Tuesday. And Darlene has to hide in her own home, and Floyd and I take over the kitchen, and he feeds me cereal and fruit and things, and he calls me a cereal killer. <laughs> but... It's hard not to weep thinking of what God has given us in relationship. We talk about everything. We talk about anything. And it doesn't really matter because we know each other's hearts. We know what, what we're after. We're after God. We're after knowing Him deeply. Or we're after, we'll take something on and just carve it into little pieces and tell why it's all wrong and how it should be different. And we'll reconstruct it. We make it better. Nobody ever knows we did it. But one day it's going to be known, I think. And, and we believe we're actually improving ourselves and one another in the presence of God. We always make sure there's a chair there for Jesus. And we can spill in front of Jesus and we don't care. And I can... I can use the wrong spoon or the wrong fork and it doesn't matter because we're friends. And you're being touched by that conversation even now. You feel it. Why? Because your heart longs for that. You're built for that. And if we don't take time to establish close relationships with a few people, you're not going to have it with everybody. But you can be a better person with everybody else if you have that inner circle of friends people you're willing to open your heart with. And if you accomplish that in this world, you will also accomplish being able to pull up a chair with God and speak freely with Him. And you'll learn to pray with your friends. You know, you need people who don't have other people. How do they judge whether or not their relationship is real? How do they know that their, their effectiveness in God is genuine? How do, you, how do you know? You only have to judge yourself by yourself. And so you could always approve yourself, I'm doing great. But what if I sit down and pray some crazy doctrinal thing off on the sidebar of Christianity in front of my friend, and they're going, wait, 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 I can't agree with you in prayer. You just went off a limb there, buddy. That's not even biblical. What are you praying? Well, don't stop me. I'm all by myself. No, your friend's... The Bible says iron sharpens iron, and so, do, so does the countenance of your friend sharpen you. We're supposed to be in relationship. Back to John. If you say you love God, but you don't love the people you can see, you're a liar. May I point out this also? I think this is important. We're broken people. It's hard for us to accomplish these things. It's not always easy. God established his covenant with David before he met Bathsheba and before he did the census over Israel. 
both of which offended God. Okay? Just chronologically. God, do you think God knew about Bathsheba before David did? Sure. Uh-huh. He knew about the offenses that were coming. God sees everything all at once. Not a problem for him. Us, it's a little tough. But God knows. And even knowing that, he still said, I found David a man who is after my own heart and will do all my will. And I'm going to make covenant with him. So he's in covenant relationship. He's already pulled up his seat in front of the ark and had dialogue with God at level one. He's in close, intimate relationship with God. And he still later offends God and breaks the law of God. What does that tell me? I'll tell you what, that gives me hope. (laughs) Because this covenant with the cross and Jesus Christ was made with you and I. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us in this, Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made covenant. He made it available. There are still lots of people out there, uh, of which I could still be a part, who are rejecting the covenant. They don't want anything to do with God. But it's still there, 100% for them. And the moment they wake up and go, God made covenant with me, they might respond like David and go pull up a chair and sit in his presence and say, God, why me? Isn't that how you feel? Why me? Why does God love me the way he loves me? I don't know. He just decided. And he's God. He could do that. He could just decide to pick me and love me and you. But we should have a similar response to take time and pull up a chair and spend time with him in relationship. So uh, there's hope for me. The covenant's established. I've responded to the covenant through Jesus. And I, I can have level one with God all the time. And yet I know... That as I walk it out, I will likely offend him still. And he'll forgive me for that. I won't try to do it so I can get forgiven. I won't use grace as a cloak of unrighteousness and hide my sin. And say, well, God has to forgive me if I act like this. So I'll just go ahead and do it and ask him to forgive me later. No, that's the wrong way to go. What I need to do is say, because I'm forgiven, because I'm in covenant, I will walk, I will do the best, I will let Christ live through me if I fail. There remains hope for me, just like for David. And God won't cast me off. He'll say, just come, be in my presence, let's work it out. And I tell you what, if you've got some close friends who are next to you in the walk, they'll know when you're messing up too. Right? And there'll be accountability. And they'll say, wait, you know, I see you're wobbling, man. You're wobbling. You're about to get off the road here. I need to get next to you and fix your wobble you know because you're scary plan to sit with the father every day see this is a message about prayer empowered by the Holy Spirit through prayer I said last week if we're going to follow this definition around the room on these banners Holy Spirit empowered, prayer, discipleship, spiritual growth, community, evangelism, group multiplication. All these things are going to happen. None of them are going to take place without that one happening, prayer. If we don't pray, we don't learn how to be in relationship with God. We don't understand how to be in relationship with one another. We don't love one another if we're unwilling to accept the relationship. You know, there are some really wild relationships that God wants to put together. I mean, I think they're 
stupendous. The, the arrangements have been made, but will you make yourself available to let him pull it off? I've become friends with people that I would have never chosen, right? You know, if you're in the body of Christ, that's apparent. You go, I would have never hung out with that person. I would have never picked those people. They're weird. And they're saying the same thing back at you, going, yeah, well, you're weird too. But we have a common bond in the person of Jesus in the salvation that happened at the cross. The blood of Jesus makes us family. And that saying's still true. You know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. So we're stuck with each other. It's about prayer. Be real with people. You can't be totally transparent with everybody. But in any decade of your life, you could count the closest people to you on one hand. Those that should be willing to go at least to level two, three, two. And if you're married, you've got somebody in your level one box. Right? Foster those relationships. Part of the question last week was, who would you be, who do you want to spend more time with this week? It's probably those people. I'd like to spend more time with them. We don't get enough time. You can spend hours with them and then feel like it's just not enough. I need more. But i got to go to work sometime, so off we go. And you're thinking, I'm going to get with them just as quick as I can. I want to talk to them. I want to be. And if you miss time with them, you, you feel less for it. Don't you? Yeah, I just missed that time. And you look for a way to make it up. Well, this has not been a lot of preaching and yelling and screaming. Not Pentecostal, charismatic, jumping around preaching. I think I've lost some of that along the way. I'd rather talk about it. I'd rather be real about it. Not that preaching and yelling and screaming isn't real. You know, There's room for that too. But the older I get, the more mature I get, the more important I see this. And I start leaning into this Apostle John stuff. I'm starting to get it. Loving people is what it's about. Loving one another, loving God. Serving one another, serving God. You look at all the more than 35 one another passages of the New Testament, and you realize you can't pull those things off when it says do this, one another, pray for one another, love one another, forgive one another, uh, you know, serve one another. Wash one another's feet. You can't do that unless you're with people. It means you can't accomplish the Christian life unless other people are involved. Do it alone. Basically, you're an idolater. You're living by yourself and worshiping yourself, and you're you're all you need. Just you and God. I mean, if you're in some persecuted country, you might be able to get away with that statement. But here, no, you can't. Just forget it. <laughs> okay, Father. I gotta stop here, and you know that better than I do. And I submit to you, Lord, that what I really want is for each one of us to have the ability to come and sit in your presence. To understand that our prayer life isn't separate than our everyday life. To have the freedom to touch you from anywhere on the globe where we stand or sit without pretense or without having to have a special set of geographic circumstances or special place, building, the Lord, that we would have this open level one conversation going all the time. And that it would be our life to breathe prayer. Lord, it would be so natural to be supernatural. 
dialoguing with you, hearing, as Jesus did, instruction about today, knowing what to do, what decisions to make, because you've spoken to us your truth. Lord, and I pray also that you will, in this journey we're on of prayer, help us identify those closest to us, the ones that we can have level three, level two communication with, people who will hold our heart, and no doubt they'll hurt it, they'll break it somehow, but we know that they really do love us and care. Lord, build for us relationships that will sustain us in our walk with you. Set us into families. Lord, your word says you set the solitary into families. You're a husband to the widow. You're a father to the fatherless. You don't want to see us living by ourselves. You're the one who said it's not good that man should be alone. Lord, help us each one to be adopted into a family, a spiritual entity, a group who are all about chasing you down and going through life with you. Put a longing in our spirit that says we can't be done until we've completed relationships with others and with you. I ask it sincerely, Father, and I pray this for myself as well. I really do want it. Grant it to us in Jesus' name. Bless you. Go home and wax your shovels. And then get the shovel. They say there's a little more on the way. Don't like that idea. Oh, there it is. Snowing outside right now.